something to do with wisdom, it has something to do with stability. While attention may be totally unethical, just because you're attentive does not mean you're ethically or empathically connected. If you want to torture something, you better be very attentive to what is particularly painful, particularly overwhelming, particularly threatening. If you aim, take and shoot at an animal, you have to do that with attention. That doesn't make your activity ethical. Yeah? So it's, Buddhist psychology is crystal clear on this. Attention, manasikara, is one of the features of every conscious moment of experience. It's not something special. Mindfulness is something special. It is something that is connected with ethics, that is connected with empathy, that is connected with some wisdom aspect. Remember the image of last night, the examining image, the probe, the surgeon? And mindfulness has something to do with stillness. It, has, it is the raw product of calm. Now, this is a cultivated skill of mind. If we reduce Buddhist mindfulness, that is deemed to be one of the most transformative factors in mind development, to plain attention, you know, three quarters of the power of mindfulness are lost. So the confusion of mindfulness with attention is a sad thing. If we're interested in cultivating uh, a mindfulness, that uses attention but is not reduced to attention, then we need to identify what our attention goes to. That's the first step. What is my mind actually already doing? You know, in my ideal world, we meditation teachers, we would start at zero. You, know. you would come here and you wouldn't have any ideas about meditation. As it stands, we know all too well that whatever we say, you already have your opinions. Not just that. You're totally entitled to have your opinions, but you tend to only listen to what we say, confirming your opinions. You tend to not listen to things that do not validate your opinions. Um, so what I actually get through to you may have a lot more to do with what you already secretly believe about mindfulness, about meditation, about Buddhists, about what's wrong with you or what you're good at, yeah? and very little of what I'm trying to get across. I've become, over the years, more humble in my ambitions, what can be carried across. So, sorry if this is more insulting than it maybe need to be. Um, let's acknowledge, we come to this not as blank sheets. We already have notions. We have already a relationship to ourselves. We already have attentional functions in place. We all have learned and trained in stuff. We all have arrived at conclusions what we are lacking and what is what. And one of the first tasks for meditators is to orient and actually find out what's already happening. So I need to be interested in where my attention already goes. That's the, one of the first tasks. And to train voluntary attention means we need to identify a specific task and then try to bring our attention gently, paternally, maternally, uh, kindly, in a sustained way to engage with that task. Yeah? So, unless we do task-focused exercises, it is very unlikely that we will become aware of the patterns of attention already in place. 
Yeah? It's like traveling. You think you're normal until you travel to a country where people also think they're normal, only to find out that they're normal in a very, very different way. Yeah. And that doesn't just tell you something about how other people do things in other ways. It tells you, this is maybe more important, tells you something about how you do things in ways that you have never reflected about. Yeah? So we learn both ways. We learn about the other, but we also, in meeting the other, we learn about ourselves. The same holds true for attentional exercises. So, the attentional exercises are very simple. We identify body phenomena to become the focus of our attention. That sounds treacherously easy, you know. There is a little bit of cheating going on here because meditation teachers make that sound really easy. Just relax, stay with the breath, feel, touch into. That's all very easily said. The truth is, all this goes totally against the grain of our involuntary attentional habits we have acquired in a lifetime. These habits ask that before something is worthy of my attention, it needs to make promises. It needs to give me the promise that I'll be gratified. It needs to give me the confidence that I will feel good when I do this, or some of my pains will go away, or at least it'll be distracting enough that I feel not bored. Yeah? I am used to give my attention to stuff that gives me rewards. Yeah? So by asking my attention to associate with something as boring as my in-breath and my out-breath, I'm actually really, this is a big ask yeah, in terms of my habit. As an explanation, this is simple enough. But in terms of attentional patterning, this is a big ask. That's why we are tired in the evening after having been sitting around for a whole day. You've been facing the habit energy of your involuntary attentional patterning and you've tried to go against the current by identifying something small, something undramatic as an experience and trying to attune your attentional focus to this soft breathing sensation. This is a powerful exercise. It's also a radical deviation from my usual attentional economy, which goes, if it's nice, I have lots of attention. If it's not nice, I try to get away as quickly as I can. Yeah? I exaggerate a little, but I guess you get the gist. It is fair to acknowledge the radicalness in which the suggestion of an exercise, just like being with one's felt breath, deviates from what we usually do attentionally. I think this is fair to say. This may also explain some of our resistances, it may explain some of our fatigue, and it explains that we feel often frustrated by not being able to do an apparently simple thing, like identifying my breath and staying with my breath. Who, frankly, can just stay with his or her breath? Yeah. Much of this exercise consists in failing. Yeah. Much of what you actually ask from people, and I hope you're not telling them that on your brochures, yeah, that they're not learning what you want them to, what you tell them to teach. You know, that they're actually learning how to fail. That they're learning how to be bigger than what they thought of themselves. That they learn what they already do. Well, they may come to you because you promised them a skill to feel more happy or to feel less depressed or less in pain or less confused. But they will probably learn that more things are going on in their lives. 
a simple imparted skill is suddenly revealing to them that their lives are bigger, that there are more complexities, that the mountain they're climbing may be bigger than they anticipated. They think of getting a niche skill they can import, add to their life strategies, and what turns out, they get a skill by which they reach a thread, and that thread takes them deeper into their life, deeper into their existence, deeper into their being. So, what does that mean for us? We need a deeper appreciation of the role of the body in this practice, because as said last night, that body is a guarantee that I am present, that I can ground myself, that I can orient myself. The body is the most reliable source of immediate experience, immediate reference. In the mind I can get lost, in the emotional world I can get lost. We all know this, you we will have learned about your amygdala, you know about overwhelm, you know that we can be flooded, you know the that the pipes leading forward into our neocortex are much bigger than the little channels that lead backwards. And so we all know that if push comes to shove and big emotions come, fear, anger, doubt, you know, these emotions can overwhelm us. We all know this. But mindfulness can strengthen and gradually rebuild our apparatus when trained, when steadied, when affirmed, when recognized. And that is what we do. The first thing that helps is connecting on more subtle ways with the body. Now we are deemed to be a sensuous culture, a sensuous time, and uh, there's maybe some truth in that, but I often find it's remarkable that people are interested in body and body experience when they are highly pleasant or comfortably pleasant, and we're by necessity aware of the body when the body is in pain or in discomfort. But there's a huge gap in between the bits we're interested in because we like them and the bits we have to be interested in because they're so painful. Many of us prefer to not pay attention to the middle bit. There's a huge bit there in the middle where there is maybe even a subtle resistance against being with the body. You know, who wants to be just sitting here digesting his breakfast bodily? and pay attention to this. This is not as fascinating as thinking my little thoughts, isn't it? So, most of the time, when our bodies are not experiencing considerable pleasure or considerable discomfort and pain, we actually prefer not to feel much of these bodies. To request an embodied attention, sustained embodied attention, is quite a skill. If you're a therapist, you will know if you're a body worker, you will know. People want to split off as soon as they feel something that is not immediately pleasant or immediately painful, that it is threatening enough to make them vigilant about it. We just we sit there at the wheel and think away. We walk and we're pondering things. We're not feeling our feet. It's quite difficult to be in one's body. The Buddha, although not using a language of psychology, was quite aware of principles of dissociation. That's why you probably hear a lot the word from the three of us about embodiment. Let me be clear what we mean by that. 
embodiment isn't just some slang word, some piece of um, uh, psychological decoration to make the old wine taste better. It's uh, it's a crucial concept. It, it acknowledges that the experience of body is twofold. The experience of body means that we can see bodies. We can see our own body, we can see other bodies, but specifically we can see our own body. So our body can function as a sense object. We can feel our own body from outside. We can pinch ourselves. We can smell ourselves, maybe. We can lick our skin and taste, maybe the salt or your hand cream or whatever. Yeah. We So we are objects. These bodies are objects to our senses. That's one dimension of the givens. In, in, in the other dimension is that the very sense by which we experience this body is part of the body itself. Yeah, the body is also the milieu for for my sensory functioning. It's not just a sense object; it's also the milieu with which or through which I experience the world. It's a simple example. A plate of spaghetti doesn't look the same when I'm hungry or when I have just eaten two of them. Yeah? My perception of that plate of spaghetti, if spaghetti does anything to you, um, or your vegan smoothie or whatever, um, is a very different perception depending on the body's state. If that body is a famished and hungry body, that perception will be significantly colored by the state of the body. Your eyes will see that smoothie differently, you know, or that spaghetti differently. Yeah. Your body will respond to that. You will affectively respond to that with a different state. You will volitionally have a different impulse set coming up. You know. Nausea, if it's the, the third plate you're asked to, gra to, uh, to please some big... Uh, cook figure who stands behind you and wants to know whether you really like the third plate of his carbonara or so, uh, or, you know, eagerly appetizing, salivating when you're hungry and looking at it. These are differences which have nothing to do with your eyes. They have to do with the state of this body of which the eyes are part of. So we em being embodied means we are experiencing these bodies with our sense organs, but we also experience the world and this body from inside, biologically, phenomenologically. Yeah. The guy who coined that term, who brought it back into place, and, um, described it beautifully that way. He said, human beings are in this world like the human heart is in a body. Yeah. We are in the same way embodied in the world, enveloped in this world, as the human heart is enveloped in this physical body. Yeah. That's the relationship. That's what we mean when we say embodied. It means an acknowledgement that the world I experience through my senses is both an objective world that I experience objectively as objects of my sensory functioning and also internally through the fact that these senses are part of the body itself. That's a crucial piece. Yeah. A gentleman was called Melo Ponti and 
he uh, his term uh, or the English translation of it is embodiment. The Buddha, although not speaking in that way, spoke of something very, very similar in describing the meditation practice of contemplating the body, he used a funny grammatical constructions. And he used this construction, it says, uh, contemplating the body in the body. Yeah. It's a very unusual syntactical construction. And to me, this is a very clear indication the Buddha knew something about dissociation. I'm not contemplating the body by thinking about the body or by imagining the body or by even visualizing the body. I'm experiencing the body both, to use Chris's term, from inside and from outside. Being embodied means I do justice that this body is both an inside experience and an outside experience. Usually, we skip one part and just go to thinking about things. We're doing the channel four number on our own bodies. So we, f we feel a little something and then we take off on a tangent and start fantasizing or conceiving or remembering the body, how it looked yesterday or what it should really look like or what the anatomy plate looks like when I think of that part. And we've actually lost the inner channel. So I would like you to pay attention particularly to experience of body when your eyes are closed and suggest you take up a meditative posture now, take a stretch. just adopt a posture that seeks uprightness let us quickly check in th three key areas the one is where my pelvis goes into my spine so where my sacrum and my lumbar vertebrae are connecting, so I try to fill out the space that deepens the sense that the sit bones are carrying my weight. So rather than making a hollow small of the back, I'm actually consciously, and I request that you put your, the small of your hand, the back of your hand onto the small of your back, just to feel, hand on your belly, back of your hand and the small of your back. Just kind of feel a little shift of your pelvis. Just roll your pelvis back and forward, and you can feel how quite a bit is moving there with just a gentle rolling your pelvis forward and backwards. Now make sure that this small of the back area is as uh, vertical as possible. There is a natural curve there, which is useful for running and walking. For sitting on a cushion, you want to minimize that curve. You don't want to have a hollow back. 
if you straighten that spine down there, then it means that the, your diaphragm, which is connected to the small of your, to the lumbar vertebrae, uh, is more likely relaxed. If your diaphragm is relaxed, your breathing will become smoother, softer, deeper, less effortful. So first key area is filling out the small of one's back and adjusting one's weight so that it is more or less symmetrical on both of your buttocks, both of your uh, sit bones. Next key area is further above your chest, okay, bronchial area. You make sure that this area is opened. Yeah? You feel a little tense, a little stretch in between your ribs, the intracostal muscles are kind of widening. So you want to come into the space with this area. That's the space we usually collapse when we hunch over books or keyboards, monitors. Even if this may feel a little artificial, you try to open out this without hollowing your back. The third key area is your, the fulcrum of your head. So the place where your head more or less hinges on your neck. So one way to do this is to kind of imagine your spine is lengthening. You're kind of pulling yourself up like a, I think it's a string puppet. Yeah. However artificial this may feel, you can then relax into this artificially prolonged spine. And then you kind of move your chin forward and backward and just kind of look. If you pull it back, as you hear my voice changing, the neck lengthens beautifully, but it gets a bit pinched in my larynx area. If you do the opposite, your larynx goes all soft, but the neck may be pinched. Exaggerate for a moment, really exaggerate. Somewhere on the trajectory of your chin is a point where it feels normal. This may not be the good point. This may be just the point you usually do. So I'd like you to look for another point, and that other point is the point where your head has the least amount of weight. So try to find that point and look with the tone in your muscles around your throat and the tone in the muscles around your neck is roughly of equal tone. That's another indication. So I'd like you to do that when you sit down and practice today, that you play with this, that you establish awareness of these three key areas, sacrum, bronchial, upper vertebras, and the placement of your head. And once you've established that this is that you have a sense for your midline, a sense for your balance, you're letting the mind become wide. You're letting the attentional focus become very open. And you're just asking how it feels to be here right now, sitting here. Not what you think about it, but what you actually feel in the body, through the body, in embodied ways. Let us 
identify three simple dimensions. One of them is tactile. It's about touch. It involves my skin. Where does this body make contact with its environment right now? Just try to become conscious. Which parts of you touch the mat, the cushion, maybe touch other parts of the body? How big is the surface you actually feel to be in touch with a mat, a cushion, a bench, a chair? And maybe how some parts of your body, in my case, my hands are touching my legs. Just how big such a hand is. We're interested in surface now. We're interested in touch. We're interested in a dimension of contact. Take note of asymmetries. Theoretically, we're all symmetrical. Practically, the closer you look, the less symmetrical we seem to be. Even our ears may not be exactly at the same height. Let alone do we generally have symmetrical sensations in the body. So just notice whether one of your legs seems to be more in contact with the mat or the cushion than the other. Let us make use of these little contrasts to vitalize our attentional focus. So we're moving this attentional focus through the body. We mobilize a warm sort of beam of attention moving through parts of the body and acknowledging how this body is touched, how it makes contact. All such contact, and you may arrive at feeling your clothes, I see all of you are clothed and be curious if you ask, where do you actually feel those clothes? I'm always baffled that I find the sleeves and the color much more discernible than some of the other areas of which I know are clothed, but it doesn't necessarily yield so many contact sensations. And notice the skin where the skin is not covered. What does the skin feel? Do you have tingling? Do you feel warmth? Draft? Do you feel the body convecting warmth and being touched by coolness? You could now go to great depth and methodically scan through the surface of the body and identify little sensations with some ec- effort and some exercise. This is, this is a highly potent way to develop stillness.
also a potent way to develop sensitivity. We don't go into the minutiae of that, we shift our emphasis. We're now interested in which parts of the body tell me of the fact that this body is upright. I'm now interested in feeling how it comes that it is possible for me to experience some parts of the body to be above other parts. I'm interested now in the verticality of this body. This happens not through tactile information, it happens through things like proprioception. My body's parts know where other body parts are. My right hand, even with closed eyes, would easily find my left hand, if I ask it to do so. I can even feel whether they are lying in symmetrical places on my legs without looking. I can feel that. The body has a way of knowing its relationship to other parts or to some of to its parts. The parts themselves seem to know of the position of other parts. I could point at my nose in the dark. So do feel alignment right now. Let us see whether we can feel if our shoulders are above our hips. If our earlobes are above our shoulders. Try to sense whether you are truly upright, truly balanced, and whether you're sitting on your sitting construction in symmetrical ways. More important than obtaining such symmetry is your awareness of anything that deviates from such symmetry. Anything that's different, contrasting, strangely other, disproportionate, very useful. Again, we could deepen into this, but instead I like to suggest we try out another dimension of body. This dimension is about the space element. This body is not just a topical sensation or a, an arrangement of sensations. There is a space element in this body. There's something in me that feels 
that this body consists of spaces. An easy way to connect with that space is just feeling the size of my in-breath or feeling the rib cage widen or feeling the belly widen when I breathe in, when I breathe out. So the embodied space seems to change shape while I breathe. There's a dilation and a slight contraction going on with that movement. So the space that I can feel this body to inhabit is actually changing. With every breath, that space widens, softens and collapses a little bit. There may be other spaces I can feel, the space of a hand, the space of a shoulder, my abdominal and genital area as a space. And it's different to be with a space and just listen from that space. How does it feel to be in that space, inhabiting your left thigh, for example. How does the world look if you feel from the left thigh? If you allow that space to become as big as your body, I'd be interested to for you to experiment by touching into this whole body sitting here, the space of one whole body sitting here. A space that is aware that the textures in that space are different. My heart area feels different than my elbow. Different textures different density, different degrees of saturation, different degree of warmth, clarity, all this differs. And yet there's a way I can be with this whole felt, breathing, sensate body. Now I'd be curious to ask you a question. This is, where does the inside experience of this body end and where does the outside begin? If I am just in the level of felt embodied awareness, where does the inside end and where does the outside begin? How do I feel my neighbor sitting here with me? without looking, without overtly touching, how do I feel this other being other than by feeling into my body? Ask yourself, does the outside begin at your skin or five centimeters out or is there such a boundary at all? If I'm in the realm of felt experience, 
Is there an outside, an inside? Try out, feel. Don't talk to your mind, talk to your body. Good. Take a stretch. <coughs> Emphasis today, embodied awareness, breath, posture, textures of your body. Um, if you're having any doubts whether this is something you should do or you should follow your ideas, um, take this as a definite statement. You should not follow your ideas, but consider your ideas, however good and tantalizing, um, right now to be not the way to pursue your practice. That these ideas will be at least as good if, if you uh, let them mature a little bit and uh, allow yourself to deepen into the body. We have a few things I'd like to address. We appreciate if you're punctual, coming in on time and for the activities of the program. It makes our lives easier. It's nicer if groups are reasonably uh, quickly coalescing. It uh, helps the movements of the group. There's a sort of peristalsis of a meditation retreat. And if we do that, in sync, then this is uh, a lot more smooth. 
we'd also like to encourage you to take in as little gear into the meditation hall as possible. So rucksacks, handbags, your favorite duvet or so. Um, take a blanket, leave what you can leave in here. And uh, uh, there's plenty of us in the room, so there's enough things in here. Uh, we'll also have groups. You will be, all of you will be seen by two of the teachers in the course of this retreat. The groups are posted on the board and uh, make sure that you see in which group you are and uh, seek out the respective rooms. Right now is the first group in five minutes and the one is the next one is at 10.45. Um, if you need to drink a glass of water, this is wonderful, but these are not tea groups. Don't go to the tea station, get your tea and bring your tea to that group. A, you lose time and B, uh, let us keep this as a practice focus and the break focus is something else. So we'd like to request that you don't turn this into a tea scene and that you arrive punctually, as punctually as possible at these groups. There shouldn't be any conflict with yogi jobs. Careful logistics have been applied that if you have a yogi job at 10.45, that you'll be in a 9.15 group and vice versa. Yeah. Um, good. Have I forgotten something? Okay. Good. For those who don't have groups right now, it's walking meditation. Uh, about which more maybe this afternoon. Okay. <laughs>